The world's full of barns that are, like, waiting for me to burn them down. A barn all by itself beside the ocean. A barn in the middle of a rice paddy. Anyhow, all kinds of barns. Give me 15 minutes and I'll burn them clear to the ground. So it looks like there was never any barn there to begin with. No one gets choked up over it. It just disappears. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Lit to Lens podcast, a safe place for folks who like the book better than the movie. I'm with the beer-drinking, clean-shaven, and COVID-free man himself, Eric. What up, E? What up, Sloan? Not much. Wow, that's weird. We're like, we're entourage characters. I'm E, you're Sloan. Yeah. It's that we're like destined to be together. Exactly. Okay. I think we should maybe do an entourage season after this. Yes. Well, there's no reading involved in entourage. We don't need to read. We could read the scripts. Yeah, that would, that'd be better. <laughs> so for those who don't know, Lit to Lens is the adaptation podcast where film and its source material are analyzed, critiqued, and juxtaposed. Did I say that right? You did. Okay, good. You've been watching Entourage. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> to find out if the adaptation was faithful to the original text or if it had wandering eyes, why these disparities exist, and ultimately, which is better. Eric, what are we discussing on this episode? We are talking about Burning, the 2018 Korean film, which was based on a short story called Barn Burning by Haruki Murakami. This season, to back it up, Will, we are Netflixing and we are we are chilling. Oh, we're chilling too. The temperatures outside may be hot, but we are chilling in a COVID-free atmosphere where uh, we have the streaming television universe at the control. Get your cold beer. Get your blankets. Or it's hot tea. Chilly. Yeah. I have a Netflix subscription. Do you? I do. Okay, good. Well, it's not mine. I should say. Actually, yeah. Like most people, I don't pay for my own Netflix. It's my parents, I yeah. confess. So thank you, mom and dad. Yeah. Well, we're sure. old enough that it's still okay. Yeah. I mean, we're past the healthcare 26, you know? Yeah. You have to, when you're 26 year old, you switch to healthcare. But, you know, Netflix doesn't have any statute of limitations, so. Yeah. So what is it? Like old enough to know better, young enough not to care? What up? Netflix and chill. What up? Ian? So this season, because we there are no movies in the theaters, we are having a stay at home season. This is the this is the first one. We're gonna do a, a big one probably this season, mm-hmm. um, until we understand what the theater reopening looks like. Yeah. Um. So so stay tuned for that. Yeah. Um. But hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Not probably not. Uh, but well, tell me about burning and barn burning. Barn burning is a short story by Haruki Murakami. Uh, it was published in 1983, originally in Japanese, and then it first appeared in the New Yorker uh, in 1992 for the English uh, publication. Um, and the movie is directed by Lee Chang Dong. Um, it's just called Burning. Uh, the screenwriters are Ojing Mi Lee and Lee Chang Lee Chang Dong. It stars Yu Ah In, Stephen Yoon, and Jeon Jong Seoul. Uh, the release date was May 16, 2018, at the Cannes Film Festival. Yep. Eric, can you give us a little recap of what happened? Barn Burning tells the story of an unnamed married man who meets a much younger woman at a wedding three years before the events of this story. Um, she impresses him with a tangerine-peeling mime trick, and they become friends. 
One day she travels to Algeria, which is in Africa, Will, woefully underpacked, which is far from Japan. Um, she's woefully underpacked, though she stays there for three months. When she comes back, she is dating a Japanese boy she met in Africa. Uh-oh. Our unnamed narrator compares him to Jay Gatsby in that it's never clear what he does for work, but he's never hurting for money. Mr. Gatsby. Mr. Gatsby. Several months later, the couple visits our narrator's home. As she often does, the woman falls asleep after some drinks and some pot. Typical. Which is illegal. It is illegal. Remember that. Don't do it. Don't Netflix and chill with pot, kids. Don't do it. <laughs> That's illegal. Um, when she falls asleep, she leaves the two men alone in uh, his house. Our Gatsby admits that he burns down barns. Quote, I roughly... I burn roughly one barn every two months, he says. Our narrator tries and fails to fully understand what that means and why he would do that. Gatsby tells him he's planning to burn one down very soon, a nearby barn. Oh my goodness. In the weeks to come, our narrator uses a map to plot out the locations of nearby barns he believes Gatsby may target, narrowing the list to a handful. He jogs by each of the barns daily, and none are ever burned down. Plot twist. What? The narrator loses touch with Gatsby and the girl. Later still, the narrator runs into Gatsby at a coffee shop where it's revealed that neither have seen the woman in some time. Gatsby admits to having burned down a barn, though the narrator remains unconvinced. They make plans to meet again. The narrator then drops by the girl's apartment, as he does every so often, and she is never home, and they are never able to get in touch, and he never does hear of any barns burning. What the heck? So, that is Barn Burning by Haruki Murakami. Well, Eric... Thank you for the recap. What did you think of the short story? That's funny. That was a long recap for a nine-page short story in The New Yorker. Yeah. Although it's kind of a short nine pages. It's not... They're not the full three-column New Yorker right. joints we're, we're used to. Mm-hmm. But um, what do I think of the short story? I I liked it. I read it twice for the episode. Um, Me too. Wow. Twice, done. baby. What's yeah. that? You are a bit more of a Murakami head than I am. Like I, I think you've read multiple books. I've read one book. If I come across one of his short stories in The New Yorker, I'm a subscriber. I pay for that oh, myself. That? That's yeah. not true. I don't pay for that myself. <laughs> Is that from your parents too? It also, it's also from my parents. Shout out mom. They, have, they, they are very cultured. And I borrow that culture. <laughs> there you go. Um, but when I come across one of his stories in The New Yorker, I'll read it. Um, it struck me as very tonally similar and, and like craft similar to some of his other work. He is somebody who is very, like, surreal, but also his his writing is kind of sparse, um, and it's it's often unclear, like, what happens mm-hmm. on, upon, like, first read, and this was no different. So right. I liked it. I, I needed a second read to fully grasp what the fuck was happening. Right. Me too. Me too. I mean, it, it, thankfully, it was only the nine pages, not even the nine full pages, because it was easy to breeze through. But yeah. yeah, I needed a second read as well because it is—it's ambiguous, and that's typical Murakami, where he gives you this, this, these interesting situations, and then these like very odd characters that do very like odd things, um, and kind of makes it plain and simple Jane. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it just sort of matter-of-factly states these weird things that happen, and that was very typical of this story as well. As well, excuse me. Um, yeah, I mean, it—it it was you know if. If the New Yorker published this without a, without an author, I would have guessed that this was Murakami. Um, it was very typical, like I said before, but um, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was interesting. You're a big Murakami fan. Yeah, yeah. I've read um, like several of his books, actually. I've read um, The Hear the Wind Sing, Pinball 1973, A Wild Sheep Chase, uh, Norwegian Wood, um, Spenic Sweetheart, 
And then the two most recent ones, um, Colorless, Sukuru Tazaki and his years of pilgrimage, and then Killing Kometador, or Killing Kometador, however you pronounce it. And I have a few others on my bookshelf that I like want to get to. But so yeah, he is, I uh, really, really enjoy his writing. Um, but the, yeah, so he, like, and you've read a while, Cheap Chase, and that was very odd and ambiguous, much yeah. like this story, right? Yeah. But this story, for sure, like, the the barn burning is is the, like, plot device that stands out. Like, in Wild Sheep Chase, there's a guy that dresses up like a sheep, and, like, literally, they run around. Right. right? That's It's, like, very bluntly like a wild sheep chase. Right. In this book, there's, like, just a guy who spits out, oh, I burn barns. Right. And like, why do you burn barns? What, what are you doing? And right. What's the point? It's it's weird. It does strike me as, like, very Murakami. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, there there's a lot simmering under the surface than mm-hmm. just, like, the barn burning. I think the barn burning could be sort of runs parallel with some other like metaphors he's playing with. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just a, a bunch of other stuff going on. Right. So I had a few questions for you about the story. I, good thing I read it twice. Okay, good. So in the story, uh, there's a 31 year old narrator, right? And he's, and he meets this 20 year old um, woman at this wedding. Right. Yeah. And she goes off and she meets this guy, whatever. And then you find out later that, the 31-year-old has a wife. While it's pretty clear that he has this attraction to this woman, this 20-year-old, and he keeps on seeing her and keeps on seeing her, but the wife is kind of just thrown in there, I think it's twice, uh, where she's mentioned. Um, and to one of those mentions, she was it basically states, oh, she wasn't at home, so yeah. her and her boyfriend came over. Yeah. Um, so, you know, as, as a writer, is this something that you, like, is this sort of like a misdirection, or does it sort of have more of a purpose for the story. I just, when I read it, I just sort of felt like, why is this even in here? It's a good question. To me, when I read that, I, and maybe you had to put on your like 1983 or 1992 glasses, but to me, it signals a, um, like friendliness or a non-threatening narrator. So I, he's married and you could take that to say, there's never going to be a sexual relationship between him and this 20 year old. Mm. Although that is like, it's, is it a, it's kind it's a kind of alluded to yeah right? I mean, like she strips naked in his house and sleeps in his bed yeah and he's like man i wish i could nap next to her but then yeah. he's like i, I want to nap next to her it's pretty not clear. anything more sinister or sexual or anything like that so to me so i was he, like the, the presence of a wife who's not really even there ever sort of said like oh i'm a good like mm-hmm. family he's, i don't know i'm family a good family man. man i have like a woman don't think of me as a sexual partner to this person gotcha. i'm simply a friend Gotcha, okay. So maybe it is a misdirection. Although he wants to curl up to her naked body. Right. Just right. a nap. <laughs> just for a little snooze. It's just, it's innocent, baby. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, okay, so that, that part I found interesting. Um, and then another part of the story, that which I thought was really weird, was, uh, Gat- we're just calling him Gatsby. Yeah. Uh, the character. They're who, all unnamed in the story. Yeah, so this character who kind of gives off this Gatsby vibe. Don't really know what he does, um, but he has all this money, apparently, and blah, blah, blah. So he does this thing where it, twice in the story where he f- snaps his fingers like a couple times. First, where he's describing, um, I totally forgot, but basically he's describing something, or he forgets his train of thought. He's, where he's talking about burning barns, right? Yeah, he's talking about burning barns, yeah. and he kind of like he's looking for the right word. That's what it is. He snaps his fingers, and at the end of the book, he's talking about they're both talking about how they can't get a hold of the woman. She's disappeared, and he's talking. He's describing her, and like, oh, she, you know, she doesn't really have the money to like live off. Um, on her funds for a few months, whatever, and then he like snaps his fingers weirdly. Yeah. And then, in his he, pocket, then he continues yeah. 
he had his pocket too and he just continues talking and i don't know what you thought about it but i was just sort of like it just immediately struck out as me as like that is very odd and like seriously there's something like really odd with this guy yeah this character i don't think i have a good answer for you other than just the where those ticks occur you could read that as like it's this is when he's lying because he says Mm -hmm. he burns down barns and we never see him burn down a barn Mm -hmm. so maybe he's just all talk there and Mm -hmm. the snapping of the fingers is some sort of tell that it's a lie um interesting and if you believe that then when he says yeah she can't she can't travel i don't know where she is and snaps his fingers and it's like well is that also a lie? Yeah. Maybe he does know where she is. Yeah. Or it's just an innocent tick. I have no idea. Because yeah. the narrator does have a weird tick where he eats apples. Yeah. He ate seven yeah. or something in a day. Yeah. So I, I don't I don't know. Yeah. Like, is that just a weird Murakami detail? Or is it something under the surface that mm. requires more like exploration? Yeah. I feel like he... Honestly, in my opinion, I feel like Murakami throws these things in just to sort of get you thinking. And it's almost like a misdirection, like a like a magician kind of like is showing you this thing. Like a mime? It's weird. Oh, like a, wow, the tangerine peeling. Thank you. <laughs> well done. But yeah, so I think it's like this like weird kind of like, you know, the matador is holding this red, uh, I don't know, what, what is that even cape. called? A cape, I guess. Yeah. yeah. For the bull to kind of like get you to focus on that when really it's, you know, he's really putting on this show. Yeah. So, and then also I want to ask you, what do you think Gatsby really does? What is he quoted as doing? What does he say? Uh, He tells our narrator that he's in the import-export business. Hmm. And our narrator takes that to mean he is in foreign trade. Mm -hmm. Um, You can, reader, listener, take that however you want. I don't know. Did you read that as sinister? Like, Um, I'm like, quote-unquote, in trade. Or is it just like a bullshit cover for whatever it is that he does i i did i read it as sinister immediately yeah um it's like what's he doing in africa do we um, think he's a drug dealer i mean that was like my initial thought just because like that's kind of like the common trope i guess and like, he has drugs and he literally yeah smoking weed and yeah. yeah so that was kind of my initial thinking i mean why else be so vague about your job you could just be like i'm in foreign trade or like yeah you know i'm in international affairs yeah so, so maybe it's, it's, it's a device to make you trust him less. Like if we don't, mm-hmm. if we don't, if then the less we know about him, the less we trust him. Yeah. Because he's withholding right. from us and we don't like that. Yeah. I don't, I don't like people with ticks, snapping finger ticks. That's just like, yeah, that's enough. That's enough for me. I know from you, doc. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, maybe it is just like, like a, a, a device to make you question, question who mm-hmm. he is and who he says he is. Mm-hmm. Question everything about him. Yeah. I think that's probably what it was um and then did you relate to the idea of morality constructed within a parallel existence that murakami described or i guess gatsby kind of described to the, the narrator um in the story did you what did you think of that so let's start this by saying there is like four of the nine pages are a like a conversation that happens while they're both very high yes right and yes. sort of drunk so they have this like wide-ranging conversation that goes from this like parallel existences and morality to I burn barns. Right. Here's how I do it. Here's my pace or whatever. Right. Um, I didn't understand that at all the first time I read it. And before we talked before the episode, my thinking was that 
your parallel existence and you have your own thought, Mm -hmm. which I want to ask you after this, but was like, okay, I'm a person. So part of me is good. And part of me is bad. And morality is sort of the like device on that spectrum that allows you to be like more of one thing than the other Mm -hmm. at one, at a given time. So like we're all equal, equal parts, good and bad, but your morality says that most of the time you're going to be like 96% good. Right. So my thought is actually very similar to that, where, the, you know, you have two of the same person. We should have smoked weed before we did this. Honestly, we probably should have. <laughs> Who's to say I didn't? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> but my thought was, there's two of me, right? There's myself, right, in, rea- in this reality. But there's another person that is me uh, in a separate reality who is always watching me. That's how I interpret it, that they're always watching my actions to sort of judge and correct. And I'm aware of them watching me. Um, so I'm aware of their judgment. So I basically want to please them, please the other me and be like, okay, well, I need to do the right thing, essentially. Yeah. But it's sort of like, it's on that spectrum. It's like, there's a good and a bad. And the, the good one is the, the pure one is the one that's always watching me. And I'm more of the bad one. Like, I always need to correct myself in his eyes, essentially. Yeah. So that, that was, it was a really interesting thing that I got immediately had like that thought in my head and then I continued reading and I lost that thought because it's it described something a little different, but I thought that was a cool, cool thing to add into the story. Yeah. Cause they, there is a discussion about the morality of burning down barns. Right. Right. And I think his rationale is that yeah. like there is a part of me that is like, this is fine. And I believe that part of me and that's why I do it. Right. These barns are like a blight on the countryside and there are already pieces of shit. So I'm just doing everybody a favor by lighting the match. He's just a total POS. Not really, but... Maybe. He might be. I kind of think he is. Yeah. He seems like it. Yeah. Burning down barns. Smoking weed. Dude. It's awful. He's drinking beer and not getting drunk. Yeah. And driving home. I mean, <laughs> come on. That's pretty bad. Yeah. Don't drive. Don't drink and drive, kids. Please. No. Just stay home. Watch and Netflix. adults. Yeah. Just yeah. <laughs> Netflix and chill. That's it. Listen to Little Lens. Okay, so before we move on uh, to our break and into the next section, I have a little game for you. It's a pretty familiar game. I I know you're familiar with the rules, but just so our listeners are aware. It's called Two Truths, One Lie. Pretty self-explanatory. I tell you two truths, I tell you one lie. You have to guess the lie. Yes. Eric, are you ready? I'm ready. Eric, don't talk when I'm describing, okay, please. Can I make noises? (laughs) You can make as many noises as you like. Just don't say audible words. Okay. Wait. Number, <laughs> number one, Bernie was nominated for the Best Foreign Language Film at the 91st Academy Awards in 2019, but ultimately lost out to Roma. Number two, Stephen Yoon stated that he was at first a tiny bit reluctant to take the role of Ben in this film because he didn't feel like he was right for the role as a full-blooded Korean. He also stated as a Korean-American who moved to the U.S. when he was four years old that he was not sure if, he's, if his Korean was up to snuff for a full Korean role. Number three, Stephen Yoon is the only person to know whether or not Ben has actually done what Jung Soo believes he has done to Hey Me. Eric, do you know the answer? Those are good ones. Um, I'm looking for the lie. I, I believe the first one is a lie. I, for some reason in my mind, there was no Oscars for burning, and that was like a big travesty in Twitter. And for, that's in my head. So I'm going to say that is the lie. 
It was not nominated for Best Foreign Language. You are correct. It was not. Suck it. <laughs> <laughs> I figured I'd throw you a layup since you've been getting nominated pretty recently. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was not nominated. It was shortlisted. It was part of the nine that was shortlisted, uh, but was not na- ultimately not na- not nominated. It was ultimately not nominated. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it was, yeah. That, I mean, that was it was a, a bunch good... of top ten lists. It was. That was a good year for... Foreign language. Right? Because it was Roma and it was Cold War. Cold War, yeah. And I remember I watched Cold War. That was And really obviously good. Netflix and chill with Roma. Mm, yeah. So, these three, I mean... Yeah. It probably should have been nominated, but, you know, Politics as, it, as they are. Yeah. All right, so what about number two and three? So, number two is true. Um, Stephen Yoon did state in an interview that he didn't feel like his Korean was up to snuff because um, he was moved to the u.s when he was four years old and he basically his korean i guess wasn't as uh as good he thought uh to play in a full korean film um so he was a tiny bit reluctant but he's he said working with lee chang dong was like a dream of his so he obviously couldn't turn it down fully and then number three and then steven yun again um did say in an interview different interview that he was the only person to know whether or not um ben has actually done what jong su believes he has done to Haimi um, because the director basically gave him so much freedom with the role. He said, you know, I don't want you to play it as if one way or the other. I want you to basically decide and just run with it. Um, so I think we'll get into that later on, but it was kind of an interesting um, interesting thing to give to an actor. I guess did, give him a lot of power. Did you know that before you watched the movie? I did not, know. Yeah, that'd be interesting to rewatch it, knowing that he knows the truth and nobody else does. Yeah. Not even the director. Ambiguity. Murakami. <laughs> Li Chang Dong. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the game. Glad you played. Well done. Got a win. Another curly W in the books. Yeah. So uh, before we go on to our next section, we're going to take a quick commercial break. Hello, hello, hello. It's Eric. If you're listening to this episode of the Lit to Lens podcast. Whether or not you're actually enjoying it is up to you, but I've got good news. There are lots more episodes. Subscribe to the show on iTunes and follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Lit to Lens. Don't forget to laugh at Will's jokes in this episode. He needs the positive affirmation. It's true. I just want to put that out there. And now, back to the show. Thank you for that kind word, Eric. You're welcome. That was really great. I filmed a bunch of those one day, and we're just using them now. They're pretty good. I didn't film it, sorry, I recorded them. Well, we also filmed it. Yeah. That's for later. <laughs> <laughs> so, Eric, why would you adapt Barn Burning? Well, I, I'm probably going to answer this question a lot of times from a business standpoint, so I'm, I try not to say too much about the business. But to me, like Murakami is probably one of the 10 or 12 most famous writers on the planet, right? He's mm-hmm. not super adapted in american film mm-hmm. i think he's probably got a couple of adaptations that are japanese and or korean mm-hmm. now um but to me like he's a name he can sort of draw you in he's not like stephen king but he's not not stephen king right you know i mean I, right. he's closer to stephen king than like a nobody yeah right right um on the writing itself i think we talked about this when we talked about what we liked about the book but he is somebody that shows not tells and from a screenwriter's perspective, I think that offers you a challenge and an opportunity. Like there is, there's a, there's a lot there that's 
like writhing under the surface that you just sort of have to dig up. Mm. But it makes you do a lot of the work mm-hmm. because there's there's stuff that is missing. So I think it's kind of a, a push-pull. It's a challenge. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting point for the for, for a screenwriter to sort of like have to pull up some of that work. It, does that make it better in a way for, for the screenwriter to kind of make it their own? Instead of having to like maybe adapt something exactly as, you know, maybe a Stephen King novel would be or like a Tom Clancy novel would be. I mean... I think they're they're different. They're different. Like writing a movie is different than writing a book. Mm-hmm. You can do different things with a book than you can do in a movie, and I think you, you sort of have to reimagine it sometimes, or you 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 can't be afraid to mess with it. Mm-hmm. I think that's where we see trouble. Is like, oh, okay, this is it. It has to be it. Right. You know. Right. If you're buying this, right, do what you want with it. You you have a blank canvas. Obviously, the work does a lot of the work for you. Mm-hmm. Like, Literally, it's there, mm-hmm. and you want to. I for me, like you want to keep the heart of it. You want to keep the story. You want to make sure the fans of it are gonna get what they got from the work mm-hmm. in the film. But I mean, you sort of have to play with it. Yeah, and I guess it, it's sort of a benefit for the filmmakers that this isn't such a beloved novel, right? This isn't, you know, Harry Potter. This isn't Twilight. This isn't like some big book that yeah. millions of people read this no is one's like gonna nine, get angry nine page short story that maybe maybe a couple thousand people read at best yeah you know what i mean yeah so it's not like you're gonna have people you know line up with pitchforks if you do it wrong um in that sense so regardless of what you just said eric i've given you this assignment i've handed you barn burning by Ruki murakami i want you to adapt this here's 100 million dollars oh my god actually only 10 okay it's covid so little strap for cash how do you Uh, go about it i read it a bunch of times first Mm -hmm. just to make sure i understand it um i start with the psychological fuckery well i there there is it's such a heady short story and it takes place in the narrator's head Mm -hmm. a a lot of it does at least Mm -hmm. and that is could be a problem for the screenwriter right like you can't it's hard to write interiorities mm-hmm. you know what i mean um with and this movie has no voiceover so they really like found a way to like show his feelings right. whether it's like sort of weird dreams or things that he wouldn't do that he does right um so i think that they do that pretty well but so that's what i would want to definitely have um and i definitely want to play with these ideas of like what happens when he's first introduced to the tangerine peeling mm-hmm. mime trick? Mm-hmm. Um, she says that. I guess she she offers him a question like, "Do we believe that the tangerines are there, or do we forget that they're not there?" Right. So to me, that is one of the central questions of the work, mm-hmm. and I think it probably has to be one of the central questions of the movie too, mm-hmm. because everything is, uh, in, like it's ambiguity. Like the ambiguity is everywhere, right? Right, and that statement is just like, wait. So the way to mime is to forget that the item you're grabbing and peeling is just not there, right? Right. It's yeah. not that you're pretending it is there. It's just that you forget it's not. It's all about a certain perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is also not a plot-driven work at all. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I, I think you also have to start with coming up with some plot. Yeah. Okay. You know what I mean. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, I 
I, I want to keep this intro video, but I have to add some plot. I Things to... don't really happen. No. In the story. Yeah. We talked about it. Like, four pages of the short story are just, is just a high conversation. Right. And there's, there's a couple things on either end of them, but not a lot happens. You don't know a ton about the characters. And obviously, the Gatsby thing is intentional mm-hmm. um, to make you feel a certain way. But you would need to add... I think you need to add more to... If we're calling this a Gatsby dynamic, right? So you need to add more to Daisy. You need to add more to Nick to say, what do you want? What's your motivation for being here, being in this story? And mm-hmm. they do that in the movie, actually. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of funny that I flagged that and they did it. There we go. Yeah, they probably listened to this um, podcast. Yeah, I mean, you're making a two-hour movie out of a nine-page short story. You just you just have to add. There's a lot of heavy lifting that needs to be done. Yeah. Um, and then the last thing I wanted to say was that there's no ending in the short story. Right. There's no real resolution. Well, it ends. Yeah, but there's no it resolution. It ends, right. Okay. So there's no resolution. Um, right. I, you have to add that. A but, movie needs a resolution, I think. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, well, I guess, yeah, you, you sort of do. You sort of do. I mean, the, it needs to resolve. the audience is paying yeah. you it's, it's still, for a story. It's still ambiguous, Yeah. right? The movie is. Right. But there is a clear resolution. Yeah. To the story. Yeah. That's true. You do need that. Um, or else people are just going to be upset. <laughs> It's like, why did I yeah. pay fifteen dollars to go see this and not get, you know, what I wanted? It's which like was the a story with an ending. Well, that's up for debate. Are people right? mad about that? I don't know. I never watched. <laughs> are the people Sopranos. still mad about it? Was that like 10, 15 years later? Yeah. But that, I mean, that's a whole nother argument. But did it end? It might have end. That fade to fade to black or jump to black, I guess. Yeah. Could have been their death. But this story know. is just like they. Maybe there's more. I, I guess there's more happening under the surface than we can see and because it's written it's it's harder to process that than it is in a film mm-hmm. with a film you can see steven yoon's like shitting and grin yes um the acting kind of helps make it alive for sure if that makes sense mm-hmm. so from that perspective like i guess they they've sort of copied the ending but with people it makes it a little bit more understandable for the audience yeah than if you were just reading it right when they're just flat words on a page right so would you, you know, like you said before, the, the short story doesn't really end, doesn't have a resolution. Um, do you start more at the beginning then, or do you, do you add more at the end? Like, how, is, this, is this story kind of in the middle of your film? Like, how is it, how is it structured in that sense? Like, is, is the resolution almost there, or is that where the story starts for you at the end of the short story, if you're making a film? If I'm making a film out of it? I like the plot. I mm-hmm. think the plot makes sense. Um... For you, would you would you get into this like mystery thriller kind of figure out who done it at the end of the short story? Yeah, that's what I wrote down. I okay. think there's enough thrillery elements, there's enough mystery elements that you could break those apart and dig into them. Yeah. Because fundamentally, like in the short story, she quote unquote goes missing or she's just like gone. But who's to say that she wasn't killed or gone somehow? Right. Like, Maybe she went back to North Africa. Right. We don't know. It's not. It's not as explored as it is in the movie. Mm-hmm. But obviously, like the, it's there in the short story mm-hmm. and dragging that out or building it up, I should say, is. Uh, I think that's definitely like the strongest way to do it. Yeah, which almost makes me question, like, why even write a short story that's so ambiguous with no resolution? Do you know what I mean? Like, is that just the is that just the trope of short short stories that like. It's just like this one section, part of this larger story, or is it sort of 
just like something that happens and kind of like you just move on with your life and you don't really like consider it that much i think so when we talk about movies we talk about like the most important day or event in a person's life right Mm -hmm. so that's typically what a movie is when you're talking about a short story i kind of approach it from like there's just there's one turn there's one thing that happens and we're building up to it the whole time and then it happens right so with this short story it's kind of like she disappears there's not a lot of resolution after that like she she disappears on like the last page right and it there's like three paragraphs where he's like i went to go check on her and she wasn't there and now i'm just her phone's off yeah and now i'm another year older right um so that's the turn but there's no real like when the balloon pops the air isn't let out you know like we sort of just like cut away while the balloon is still like yeah exactly and you like that yeah, I did like that. Yeah, it's kind of like your whoosh from earlier. Yeah, it's a little better. But. Yeah. So to me, to me, when I when I approach writing a short story, I, I look for the the one big turn that happens. Okay. And that's where I that's what I lead up to, and then there is like falling resolution or yeah, whatever the the suits call it at the colleges. <laughs> Damn suits. No, I think it. I think it's actually like a a kind of a really good platform for a movie. Like it gives you these basic elements, right? And then it sort of like puts, it throws you in this one direction where you can go, kind of this mystery thriller thing. And it's like, go ahead, have at it. But I'm not going to write anymore. Like this is, this yeah. is just for the New Yorker, right? But it kind of gives you that platform to, to rise up from. And I don't really read too many short stories. I think, I, I know you're more into the short story genre. Is that typical to kind of like have these like non-resolutions to yeah. the stories? Okay. I would say so. Yeah. Um, I mean, endings are hard. Mm-hmm. isn't it you just easier not to have one yeah right? just write out a scene right like yeah yeah um but it, just because you don't have an ending doesn't mean you can't have a resolution mm. um and I, so i don't know do you do you feel like this story ended because i i kind of think like yes but no i mean it, it did end i mean in my opinion he just moved on with his life and he just stopped worrying about it i mean he probably continued to worry about it but he, he you know, there was nothing he could do. Like, he tried calling her, tried going to her place. They weren't really that close of friends. Uh, although there was, like, some sort of clear connection between them. They yeah. weren't really, like, hanging out every day kind of thing. Um, and plus he had other priorities with, you know, his wife, you know, we should mention. <laughs> um, but I, I thought there was a resu- there was an ending, but there wasn't really a resolution to, you know, the big mystery. Like, where the hell did she go? Yeah. What the hell is up with this guy? Right? Like... There were big questions, but it, it certainly ended. I guess that's. I guess it wasn't satisfying. Yeah, I'll say that. But sorry for cutting you off. No, sorry. I, I think it. I, to your point, like the relationship isn't that strong in the story. Like they are literally passing friends. Yeah, they meet at a wedding and they hang out a few times. Yeah, and that. so when she does ultimately disappear, they're passing friends. It's like, oh, that kind of sucks. It would be weird for him to like kind of investigate that further, right? Yeah. So to the movie's credit, or you know, if you like that part of it, I mean, mm-hmm. they they really they created a relationship. That's true. And that made the ending have to happen. Yeah. Because if you were like, he yeah, says he's point. in love with her, right? So good if you point. are literally in love with this person, and they just disappear. Yeah. You're gonna fucking bounty hunter to find them. They certainly added to their backstory. Yeah. Sort of made it stronger than what it was. In the short story. Yeah. And we'll get into that later. But yeah, that's actually a really good point. That yeah. you kind of need that for the ending to have that sort of signi- or excuse me, significant impact. Yeah. And it, give, it just gives it 
rails to run on. Right. Let's get into it. First, a break from our sponsor. (laughs) Hey, Will here. If you've made it this far, we thank you. There's not much left, we promise. If you like what you hear, make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Twitter, and Instagram at lit to lens We want to continue to grow the LTLian community. And, well, you know, if you didn't like any specific topics uh, sprouted from the conversations today, just remember uh, those were all Eric's ideas, and all the good ones came from, well, yours truly. And now, back to the show. Welcome back, folks. That was a nice little word from myself. Great so, job, Will. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so now we're going to get into some jokes, people. It's joke time. Are you ready to laugh? I hope so. Eric, do you want to go first? I, I sure do. Okay. <clears throat> when jong Su and Hei-Mi first have sex, she remembers to get a condom out from under her bed kind of late in the process, but it's a good thing that she did, Will. Otherwise, this movie would be about a whole different kind of burning. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> That's good. That's pretty funny. It took me a second to be like, what is he? Oh, is it like because he has chlamydia? or? Yes, that's exactly why. <laughs> Just to make sure. Yeah, it's a little, uh, it's it's dirtier than I like to get on this podcast, but, you know. Well, that's okay. I mean, he seems like a guy that, you know, might have chlamydia. He's carrying around trash bags and bags yeah. of clothes and. He's smoking all the time. Never date sure a smoker. Sure signs of chlamydia. Never well. date a smoker. Definitely chlamydia. <laughs> Alright, you, your joke. Okay. What do you say when there's competition to get murdered by your boyfriend, but it's your turn? Do me. Hey me, not you. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I'm really sorry. Um, that was all I could think of. Uh, you know, for coming up with that, like, not long ago, I think that was actually <laughs> really good. Thank you. I it, think, I, honestly, of all the jokes we've done since season five started, I think these two are probably the best, too. These are definitely, yeah. Other ones are just not good. But you gotta start somewhere, you know? Yeah. You gotta progress. We're getting improve. funnier yeah. as we grow. Check out our stand-up special on Netflix. Coming That's soon. That's why we did this season. <laughs> was because they offered us a Netflix special. This is our audition. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, jokes are done. Well done, Eric. Um, let's get into the movie, the film adaptation. Yes. Spoilers ahead. Spoilers ahead. Spoiler and alert. But more jokes are also ahead. Not for me. I don't have any more. <laughs> that, was, that was all my jokes. So, Eric, how does the film adaptation stand up to its original source material? Was the adaptation literal? Was it loose? Or was it reimagined? I'm going to call this a reimagining. Okay. You, would you agree with that? Um, yeah. I mean, yes. It's, it's not it, literal. It definitely is. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. Definitely not literal. So what we talked about in the previous section was adding motivation to and backstory to some of the characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked about them creating this love story between, or love triangle, I should say, between all three of our main people. That Juicy. Yeah. Sorry. Yes, that it, it didn't exist in the story. So those are some surface level things that we already talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I wanted to bring up that we didn't talk about when we talk about backstory is Hey Me's backstory. It's a little more developed. Her motivations are a little more developed in 
the movie. And she's more connected to Jong Su. Yeah. Um, she still goes to Africa. She doesn't go for quite as long as she does in the story. I think in the story she goes for three months and meets this guy and I don't we don't know how long they've known each other. Right. In the movie she goes there for like two weeks. Yeah, it's not that and long. meets the guy like as she's coming home. There's a bombing in the Nairobi airport, I think, so they spend a lot of time together. Mm-hmm. And that's how they start their relationship. Um, but when she comes back, she talks about this idea of great hunger versus little hunger and how little hunger is like physical hunger, like I need to eat food, and great hunger is this want of understanding. And after she's heard that and has digested it, like that he hunger joke wow well done thank you um there's more to come people (laughs) she she has this great hunger she wants to do things and it sort of sets her up for a it sort of gives her a reason to disappear again because you would believe that now that she has this great hunger she's gonna go do whatever she wants Mm -hmm. i think you can see that there's this scene that we both really dug Mm -hmm. um where they're just smoking weed outside john's house it's dark. They're drinking. Mm-hmm. She comes out and just strips, like, takes, takes her top off, off her shirt, and just like waves her arms at the sunset and mm-hmm. is like totally vibing, a little bit high, a little bit drunk, yeah. just like doing her thing. It was a wild scene. Making a great hunger dance to the the gods. Yeah. It was a wild scene. I, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I mean, she, well, she's not really sexualized in the scene, which I thought it was like a classy kind of touch. She just kind of is in this mood in the zone where she just like feeling it feeling it and she just like starts dancing then she takes her top off and she's and it's a great visual scene too because it's like the magic hour right right as the sun is setting um so you see that it's kind of get this orange tint on the scene um and then i wanted to mention that the jazz number that they put in it kind of struck me at first i was like what why is there this like they're outside it's not really like a jazz um you know locale kind of but it worked i thought it worked so well with the visual um, of the scene, and then obviously with her dancing as well. And I, I just thought it was probably one of the best scenes in the movie. And then it's kind of ruined, right, when he says, you know, why'd you take off, why do you take off your clothes so easily? Only whores do that. Yeah, as right? she leaves. Yeah. So, that we're, so then we're kind of thrust back into the story. Um, but I thought that was like a like almost like a perfect scene. Um, and I did want to mention that this is like a recurring theme in Murakami works where... Um, especially the younger women have this kind of like wild uh, i don't want want to say loose necessarily because that could be construed but um you know kind of like this wild like inhibitory aspect to their to their characters where they kind of do whatever they want and then they're they're, they're more act on their emotions and their feelings than anything else um so that that was like very typical of like you know of, of a murakami story a murakami female character yeah exactly as much as he writes them well yes um what do you think about her like knowing that she has great hunger like that what do you think her like instagram looks like is it like just travel pictures where she's sort of like standing looking forward but her arm is backwards like she's holding someone's hand oh my god and she's got like a big hat on it's like the great wall of china i feel like she's she's too real for that she's okay you know what i mean she's too real to do something like that she's more got like um she's like taking pictures of the sunset yeah yeah not as much and more of like her coffee cup and not of herself got it she's not as 
she may be self-absorbed to an extent, but she's not that self-absorbed. Okay. Uh, but I think that's funny. I think that was a, a good, like... Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> now, she's not taking pics of Coachella with her friends, right? Right. What I actually wrote down to say here was, she was she'd be taking pictures of, like, things in Australia and say, this is koala tea time. Wow. So, <laughs> Let's move on. The jokes are <laughs> flying, people. <laughs> no, that scene was really great. Um, so, you know, f- what really worked in your opinion and then, you know, what didn't really work from the adaptation perspective? I think what really worked for me was the focus on class. Like, mm-hmm. they, they that exists in the story only in that he talks about Gatsby and how this guy is really rich and they don't exactly know where his money comes from. And it's sort of alluded to in the short story that she f- always finds these guys that are rich and will just pay for whatever in her right. life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it th- you get a sense, maybe you get a sense that she's poor, or you just get the sense that she uses people. Mm-hmm. In this movie, it's very clear that she's poor and Jong Su's poor. Right. Like Jong Jong Su does odd jobs. Um, he wants to be a writer, but he doesn't really have a job. Mm-hmm. He's got a college degree in creative writing. Creative writing, yep. Mistake, my guy. No job <laughs> you potential with that. Um, yeah, I do this podcast for no money. <laughs> my English degree. What we should waste. sign up for a Patreon, damn it. Yeah. Pay us people. Or just pay down my loans. Can I, we just do that? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Uh, if you want to wire me money, here's the bank kind of... Where's your PayPal? Yeah, here's my PayPal. Um, but So he's he's poor, doesn't have a job. And she, it's alluded to, has, like, oodles of credit card debt. Whereas Ben is just, like, big shot, rich guy, driving a Porsche, has nice clothes, nice apartment, is a dick to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they really build that up. Yeah. And there's a couple of cool scenes. Will, I know you were talking about mm-hmm. this. Um, John is is following Ben. He follows Ben a lot. In this he movie. does, yeah. There's a few scenes where he's just, like... In his, like, a little rickety farming car. Yeah, it's like a pickup kind of... Yeah. Pick up fan. Yeah, I mean, there's a few scenes where he's following him. The one that comes out to mind right now is a scene I thought was really interesting where he's, you know, down at the street, kind of at a bus bus stop, and he's looking up at Ben's apartment, and he sees him at the treadmill, like at the ed- edge of yeah. the glass, at the edge of the window, and they both kind of see each other, and they're looking at each other. And there's a few scenes where he's just following him up, but the one that we're talking about before is where he's chasing him kind of through this, uh, kind of off these back roads, right? And he's chasing him for a while, um, and then it's like this quick thing where he veers off the road, um, and then he kind of has to hide, um, and then they eventually he finds him at the top of a hill. His Porsche is parked, and he's standing out, out over this reservoir, and you know he's just looking out over the water, and Jong Su is kind of climbing up this hill to get him because he's ditched his car, and you know I think we both agree that in, there's this one shot. Um, and we'll put it on the Instagram. Yeah, yeah, please. So describe it, describe it for the listeners, the shot. Yeah, Ben is... Uh, they're, they're separated by his Porsche. And Jong-Soo is crouching behind the Porsche. Behind Jong-Soo is just this like, deep drop. right? Yeah. Like the hills starts its decline behind him. And in front of him is the Porsche. And in front of the Porsche is Ben looking out on this like giant reservoir, mm-hmm. lake, man-made perhaps. Yeah. Mountains, like beautiful view. And it's... Yeah, I mean, it's the metaphor of like... This rich guy has the world in front of him, mm-hmm. and the poor guy is like on the edge of a cliff, and he's like trying to get a glimpse of something nice, but yeah. it's really blocked by the material world that won't right. 
like let him in right it, it is kind of like a perfect representation for like the social class disparity between yeah. the people like the poor are always looking to the rich they're always looking with interest and intrigue like oh i want what they have and the rich are always looking beyond they're just not they're not even considering the poor people like why would they look why would they waste their time with the poor they're looking at you know whatever they want to look at essentially yeah. whatever interests them and yet what's what's dividing them is literally the material where literally a symbol for a luxury item a, you know a, a plush a plush sports car yeah i think so, in the story he drives like a german a german sports car he's like i yeah. don't i don't know sports cars so i can't tell you what sports car it is but it's german yeah so fun fact i didn't know this until maybe a year ago or so but porsches are actually german they're oh. not italian so hmm. dubious so, so it was literally a literal that was a little literal adaptation. Yeah. So yeah. Well done. Well, also with class, they they do modernize it. Obviously, the work from Murakami is from the eighties, eighty three, right? But this movie definitely takes place in modern day because there is Trump on the TV. They talk yep. about youth unemployment. Um, they bring up some initiatives they have to to try to curb things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it is a very modern movie, and it, it not to compare like Korean movies from subsequent years to each other, but it, it gives you a lot of the, like it gives you parasite vibes. Yes. Where it's, it's class struggle and it's the underclass rebelling in a way yeah. against the, the wealthier class. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe that's like a, a typical subject or theme that's discussed among South Korean stories or films. Um, but two of the most prominent films from South Korea in the past three years, yeah. um, are both about kind of very similar things about the social class disparity, um, you know, within, within their, within their country and their culture. And uh, you said something earlier about the, what, what did you say? It is sort of like, uh, this movie burning died so that parasite oh, could live. Yeah. What did you say though? It, was it, like, it, uh, it walked so parasite could run. Yeah. 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 But this one died. So yeah. This one's death. But, and in the Oscars, at least, it, it walked. Yeah. It was yeah, on the long yeah. list, and then sure. Parasite just won everything. Yeah. Good for Parasite. Good for both, South Korea. Both very good movies. I'd recommend both of them. Yeah, I mean, they're both... They both have this, like, ambiguity that kind of, like, steer you in a direction, right? They give you this... Uh, they don't tell you literally what they're trying to say. They kind of give you this, like, visual representation, which, you know, good films do. Yeah. Uh, and this film was on a bunch of top ten lists. Yeah. Uh, even, you know, especially American publication, New York Times, I think LA Times, AV Club, things like that. But yeah, I mean, there's a, but there's a bunch of other scenes where, um, where the social disparity kind of exists. Um, one of them I was just mentioning off air was uh, when they're all walking into the garage of Ben's apartment complex. There's a, there's a parking attendant there and he's like kind of talking to Ben um, kind of like, hey, how's it going? I don't know. I can't remember exactly what he says. But then Ben just kind of like smirks, you know, head down, doesn't doesn't really acknowledge him, just kind of like smirks at his comment or whatever, kind of smiles, kind of like a soft, sly, like, yeah, like oh, yeah. Ha, ha. You like, would say hi to me. Right, right exactly. Everyone but says hi to I me. I would never say hi back, kind yeah. of thing. And then uh, kind of walk in. I thought that was like a perfectly acted moment by Steven Yeun. That was like, oh, it's like, that's such a great. Like, Very schmarmy. Smarmy? Like, yeah. Like, we've all seen that before, right? Or we've been a part of that, yeah, yeah. unfortunately. Like, 
you know, you know exactly what. That's like about. you with every single parking attendant. That's what I'm saying. Like, why are you talking to me? Like, yeah. you know how much fucking money I make? Like, yeah. This is my 2004 Jeep Wrangler. <laughs> Park it somewhere nice. 99, baby. Oh, sorry. <laughs> but yeah, so, uh, and there were other things about the social, there are other aspects of the social disparity that. Yeah. One of the things that I didn't know um, mm-hmm. was the naming of the character Ben. And I think this plays into class a little bit. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned in our in our game earlier that Stephen Yun moved to America when he was really young, I think mm-hmm. four, right? Yep. And he wasn't he didn't he didn't feel like he was fully Korean or his Korean like speaking language was up to snuff. Mm-hmm. But it kind of works out in this movie for him, right? Like the, yeah. the, his Americanness sort of gives him this different air. Where yeah. he's like, I'm American money, I'm I'm fuck you money kind right. of thing, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I I, I don't really know the, um, you know how South Koreans perceive Americans, but I imagine, or even the rest of the world, kind of perceives Americans as you like, don't know. Capitalist. You don't know how the rest of the world perceives Americans. <laughs> they fucking hate us, <laughs> but they obviously perceive us with as like these capitalists, like you know these these Gatsby characters, right? Like these people who are just you know flush with money and. Um, are very uh, selfish, right? They're not very community-driven. They're very individually-driven. Um, and, and it played into Stephen Yu's character perfectly, right? Because he's this good-looking Korean-American guy who you know, gives off this, this air of you know, successfulness, right? Because yeah. he's obviously been a successful actor um, television and now film. But yeah, so the naming of Ben, I thought, was interesting because it's like, that is such an American name. It's a super South Korean character, right? He's grew up in South he plays Korea. South, he plays South Korean. He's does, he's not playing like an American, an American South Korean, Korean yeah. yeah, or whatever. So yeah, it's like why would he be named Ben? Right? Why would his parents name him Ben? Maybe it's sort of like this. We want we don't, we don't want you to have the South Korean name. We want you to have this American name because you're of this elite status in South Korea that you're better than the rest of the the Jiangsu's and the Haymees, and there is that kind of like disparity dichotomy kind of thing going on yeah nice little class divide yeah it's yeah. always good to have divisions you know yeah that's what that's that's the best part of <laughs> life yeah yeah um there was a couple of other like surface level changes they made um mm-hmm. in this movie i like we talked about how there is a love triangle. I think primarily that happened because they changed the ages of the men. Mm-hmm. Sort of flipped. That's like true. Gatsby in the in the novel or in the short story is younger than the unnamed narrator. In this story, the unnamed narrator, Jung Su, is young and is the same age as Hey Me. Right. Whereas Ben is a little bit older. Yeah. So that dynamic I think makes the sexual relationship work a little bit better. Yeah, I mean, it certainly makes the sexual relations clear from the get go, yeah. almost. I mean, she's like kind of eyeing him in the very first scene, like, "Hey, like, look at me." And I think she gives him her number, and she invites him out to drinks. And within the within the short story, it's a little more subtle. I mean, he he like we mentioned before, he he wants to go take a nap with her as she, you know, she's naked, she's drunk and stuff. He doesn't specifically allude to it, but then they have sex um, in the in the movie. Yeah, um, and he does more stuff in her room, which we don't need to talk about. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, watch the, you can watch the movie. Um, but there's also that history that they have in the movie where they grew up together, yeah. and so they've, 
they've known each other for a while, even though... Although he forgot her. He forgot her, but she also says that she got plastic surgery, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah. Sort of like the, the malleability of appearances. Like, I can change what I look like, and you forget you forget who I am. Right. And it sort of runs parallel to the idea of burning a greenhouse. So that's another mm-hmm. cosmetic change. They change barns to greenhouses. Maybe yeah. that's just like a function of korea south korea at this time that's what that's know. what i took of it i mean I, I i wasn't sure why they did that but i guess maybe south korea just has a bunch of greenhouses and figured that makes more sense than barns uh, than barns yeah yeah another cosmetic change but it's funny you mentioned the plastic surgery apparently and i heard this from fada shout out fada who used to he's in the army now but he used to serve in south korea apparently uh, plastic surgery is is like an enormous a huge thing there oh so it's it's like done it's like more common uh, as as in America, where it's more like the rich kind of get it, it's more of like a, a common thing amongst females to do. Okay. I guess maybe it's cheaper or something. I'm not really sure. Good enough. Anyways. <laughs> but yeah, the idea of like being able to change your appearance runs parallel to the idea of like you're just getting rid of these greenhouses because they're ugly and, ugly and useless. blighting the countryside. He's sort of like a, it's sort of, if you want to make this mm. comparison, like a gentrification of rural korea like i'm getting rid of these things that are useless to me i've determined that these are useless somebody that doesn't own a fucking greenhouse and lives in a condo and right um ponju i think they live in yeah i'm deciding these are terrible he lives in gangnam yeah sorry yeah no that's that's a very good point and there's like one of the final scenes where he's do he has a cosmetic kit in his bathroom yeah which is like so weird and he's doing um, his next girlfriend after yeah, her lips. Yeah, he's doing her lips and stuff after Hey Me is out of the picture. He's doing this new girlfriend's cosmetics up, and that is like that's a very good point. It's like a uh, a parallel, parallel, I guess, to the cosmetic of the cosmetics of South Korea, but also the cosmetics of you know pretty face. Yeah, it's his parallel existence. It's a good. Uh, I can, I can destroy greenhouses while also beautifying yeah. women. Just let him run the country, I mean, honestly. He's good. Well, 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 we can't do that because I want to transition to the ending. Oh, If fine. you'll allow me. Fine. Um, I, I want to talk about this as something that I think worked. Okay. I, I, I liked it. I did too. Do you have thoughts? Okay. No, I really liked um, it. It's similar to the story. So he waits, Jong-Soo waits for a barn to burn down. It never does. He still runs by them all the time. He's like, hey, did you ever burn out this barn? He's like, yeah, I did. You must not have seen it. Mm-hmm. He's like, no, bruh, I've been walking. I've been running. I've seen all the barns. <laughs> um, but it, it also adds the element of when Hey Me disappears, it's more sinister than it is in the, yes. in the short story. And he blames Ben for the disappearance. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are definitely clues that there, elude. Like yep. the cat, the, her the watch, watch uh-huh. in, the, in the kitchen. There are things that sort of make Ben sort of like the suspicious, uh, or the suspect, suspect. excuse me, yeah, yeah. Um, for for her disappearance or her murder, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, so they definitely play that up a lot. But the ending, I thought, was really, really good. Uh, it was almost surprising, because I didn't think jong Su had it in him to sort of pull out the knife and put it in Ben's stomach. Yeah. Um, but... You know, the the end scene kind of gives away, in my opinion, the truth. 
where John Sue is stabbing um, Ben. Ben, excuse me. Losing my train of thought. And they're very close, right? They're chest to chest. And they're up against his Porsche. And Ben is kind of struggling, but he's, he's dying. And eventually he just kind of embraces Jong Su in like this almost like sexual way, weirdly enough. I don't know if you got that vibe, but it kind of felt like he was holding him closer and closer. Could be. They, they exchanged smiles like previously in this movie. Yeah. So, it, but yeah, so that for me was kind of an indication that he killed, he, he, he accepted his death. Essentially. He he okay. was like this is this is right this is what is supposed to be done, and it's sort of like I'm accepting it because you know I killed, uh, Hey Me basically his, you know, uh, Jung Soo's lover or love interest. Yeah. Um. So this is like what's right. This is what's just. So he kind of accepted it. But so you believe that Ben killed or did something to Hey Me? Yeah. Okay. I think basically burning greenhouses is just his code word for killing women oh so you think he's like a serial killer yeah that's my oh my god <laughs> yeah that's my that's my thing okay um because i feel like you know if if there was a burned down greenhouse he would have found it right so it's like why yeah. he's kind of he's sort of setting him off on this little chase right because serial killers are very manipulative wild sheep chase shout out murakami thank you so it's like it is like this thing where okay he is just kind of like playing with him he's kind of messing with him and, and you know he's a, he even asks him you know at the beginning when he when they're first talking about burning greenhouses that oh you know where is your next one he's like it's very very nearby and you know of course that sets him off like oh maybe within a few miles or whatever but really it's hey me who's very nearby who's sleeping on his couch in the house yards away yeah um so and then you have, um, shoot, I forgot mine. I was going to mention. Um, oh, yeah. So I want to go back to the scene where uh, he's looking over the reservoir. Mm-hmm. So I think he's aware. Dump the body in the mash. Exactly. I think that is his, like, either his kill site or, like, maybe those are, that's where the bodies are buried or, you know, maybe they're in the reservoir. Um, and I'll get into this in a second, but I think he's kind of bringing jong Su along on this, like, he's trying to let him know about this life. Because he's obviously aware that he's chasing him because he kind of, like, veers off, right, on the road. But then he kind of gets back on, and he, he clearly knows jong Su's behind him. He's just staring out at this reservoir. Like, why is he staring at this? I think that's probably, he's he's going back to visit his victims, and that's kind of a, a thing that serial killers do. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen some serial killer shows, so that's, I'm an expert, essentially, right? So... Yeah, okay, well. <laughs> <laughs> so, I think that's my theory. Why is this door locked? Yeah, yo, yo, chill. <laughs> so, that's my theory on it. Um, I think that's, like, his burial site, his kill site, whatever, uh, based on those things. And and he does mention, you know, we mentioned earlier that Jong-Su was a writer. And there is a quote from Ben when they're talking about their, his writing that, you know, I'd love to talk to you sometime. I want to tell you my story. Um, it's like why you know obviously he's an interesting guy he's Gatsby but like you know and there's another scene that I thought was really interesting where they're both in the apartment in Ben's apartment um, after he actually finds John Su spying on him mm-hmm. remember in the car outside brings him up upstairs and he asks him 
you know, how's your writing going? What are you writing about? And there's this look on his face when John Sue says, like, I don't really know yet. This world's a mystery. He kind of gives this, like, um, almost this, like, chuckle sigh. This, like, this, like, like disappointed kind of, like, chuckle. Like, oh, man. It's like, you, ha- you haven't figured this out yet. Exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of, like, what I read into it. And that's just my interpretation. Uh, obviously, it can be interpreted many different ways, I think. It's, it's very ambiguous. But that's kind of, like, my mind was, like, kind of ch- churning after I watch it and then reread the story but what do you what do you think i agree with all that yeah. i think I, I would add the like upon further review the greenhouse as a metaphor for like broken girls sort of makes sense oh. right like i'm i'm really i'm just like i'm taking the ones that don't matter anymore and i'm just getting rid of them. i'm getting rid of them interesting and hey me her, she's excommunicated from her family because mm-hmm. of her quote-unquote credit card debt yeah. right she I don't know, sort of like a hanger-on in society. Yeah, I mean, she lives in like a studio apartment. And if she's gone, no one would have missed her except for Zhang Su. Yeah. So it's sort of like it's it's like the one fault of his. What who who knows how long it's been going on? But Mm -hmm. like that's sort of like the one fault was that he got to one of his victims in a in a way and Mm -hmm. like created a relationship where she would be remembered by him right and he talks about like i don't know why i was jealous of you i don't usually get jealous yeah because like he was the one guy that sort of ruined it for for him um and i had i had one more element to this but i i, I like that i like that a lot of the, like the broken girls and the broken greenhouses because they're all they're both like broken down they're both like yeah but sorry. I, yeah i mean i think if you're you know I mean? if you're a serial killer that's that's kind of how you think of it yeah yeah. You're targeting certain kind of people. Right. Oh, and so the other thing I wanted to bring up was there are two scenes where they go to gatherings slash parties mm-hmm. um, that Ben throws. And they're sort of like friend gatherings. One of them happens in a restaurant. One of them happens in Ben's house. And the first time they have one, Hey Me is sort of the new girl. And she gets yes. up and like talks and is talking about different cultures. And she's like, oh, it was so great. And I'm crying now. And yeah, yeah. Th- things were awesome. And then later, there is almost the exact same scene with his new girlfriend where she's talking about Chinese culture. Like she just visited there. And she's yep. like, oh, my God, I can't believe China. They're so rude. Yep. America's so rude. And I was like, these are essentially the same kind of girl, the yep. same kind of woman. And so that to me was like, okay. So we're just, like, dating the same person. Right. And then you notice that Ben actually yawns when his second girlfriend is talking. He does it the first time, too. Oh, he does? Yeah. Okay, I must have missed that. But it's like, yeah, so clearly he's, like, he's not really intrigued by this. He's just, this is sort of what he does. Yeah. He accepts it. Yeah. No, that's a good point. So, I'd like, there are, they do a good job of trying to mask it, I think. But to me, I, I think he did it. Yeah. Me too. Um, so that's that's my. He's guilty. That's my answer. He's guilty. Dave, he's got sentenced to death. That's true. He died. So. R.I.P. And then Jiangsu got naked. Yep. And drove away. Yep. Good for him. Puts the body in the Porsche. Sets the Porsche on fire. Yeah. The only thing that burns in this movie, our friends, is that Porsche. And the in the dream sequence where he sees a burning. Also the weed that they yes. smoked. Well, and the weed. So. But no greenhouses burned. Yeah. FYI. Just. Just that. But yeah, so, Eric, I wanted to ask you as we wrap up here, were the roots of the short story embedded in the film? I think so. I mm-hmm. think so. I think um, they they copied the big high conversation 
yep. sort of laid the outlines for the plot. I do wonder now. So I'm gonna say yes on on pretty much all accounts. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm curious. We just talked about like the serial killer potential in this movie. Do you think that was present in the short story? No, I mean it wasn't alluded to. I mean, it, we don't know about anything about his past. We only know that he knows this one person. So, in my interpretation, no. Okay. What about you? I don't know. I don't think so. I didn't. I certainly didn't get that. Yeah. I mean, he certainly has these weird ticks, like the the snapping and these weird. He's just a weird guy. Yeah. But I don't think it it does enough to to allude that he's a serial killer or that he even did anything. Yeah, yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Tighten tighten it up in a bow. Exactly. <laughs> so. In your opinion, was it a successful adaptation? I think so. Um, the only thing I wanted to flag was um, I saw some criticism on the internet about the Hey Me character and how she maybe wasn't developed as fully as the men, which I I don't know that I necessarily agree with, but I don't not agree with it either. Like, I mean, that's definitely correct that she wasn't as developed yeah but she wasn't the primary character right in the story so right. it's almost like a kind of like a she's sort of like the the plot device that makes these two men like face off at the end correct yeah um but she does have wants so it's not like she just doesn't exist but and she's certainly more developed than the short story character like by leaps and bounds yeah granted her wants make her sort of like help the mystery work like my wants are just to like disappear yeah and so it's like okay now you're now you're disappeared are you disappeared another thing we didn't get into uh, we don't have to get into it now but like she also had these like weird things where she would say things that weren't necessarily true like the well the story of the well right we found out later on is not true she basically blames jiang su for not remembering the story where he saves her from a well essentially but then he goes on to meet uh, uh, Amy's mother and maybe his sis- her sister or something, and they're like, "There's no, there was no well by her house. She never fell down a well." Yeah, but Jong Su's mom said there was a well. Yeah, and that's another. That was another thing. Like his mother had this like weird role in the film that didn't really do anything. Yeah, she was, she left him when she was when he was really young, I suppose, and he lived with his dad most of his life. Yeah, I guess she left because her his dad was like very. I had had outbursts all the time and stuff, mm. and she's calling. She calls the house a few times and doesn't aunt, doesn't say anything. But eventually she does, and they get coffee. And she's on her phone. She's not paying paying any attention to him. Yeah, it's weird. And she's talking about something, how she like cleans bathrooms, for these people that were not that are not. It's not explained really. It's just kind of a weird scene. And I don't. I didn't really understand the purpose of it. I think it's just to lay ambiguity. Like, yeah. Did the well exist? Did it not exist? Does it matter? Yeah, it's almost to create more questions, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, uh, yeah. It's ambiguous, just like the short story. <sighs> it's, almost, it's almost frustrating, the, the amount of ambiguity, right? It, it forces you to think more and more about it. I mean, this is a really complicated film. Yeah. Definitely something to watch more than once. For sure. But I, do, I did enjoy it a lot because it forces you to kind of, like, come up with your own conclusions, right? Yeah. It's, like, such an interesting story. It's, like, because they don't tell you the truth, you have to, like, kind of form your own reality. Yeah. So. So it was successful. Um, 
Eric, who won the movie? I'm going to say, Will, that William Faulkner won the movie. Does This is another thing I wanted to ask you <laughs> <laughs> that we didn't get to. Why? Um, our, the good old boy William Faulkner is alluded to several times. Mm-hmm. Um, it's Jong Su's favorite writer. And Ben, after hearing that, decides to pick up the book of short stories by William Faulkner. Mm-hmm. And they don't happen at the same time. They're kind of interspersed throughout the, the movie. Mm-hmm. So he comes up twice. You know who doesn't come up? Murakami. Yeah. Do you think so, he feels slighted by that? No. No. He got his name on that. Yeah. So I'm going to say Faulkner won. Okay. We're, we're bringing back someone who was published like 100 years ago. Yeah. And he actually has a story, a short story called Barn Burning. Yeah. Which I don't think is really related. No. I but... think I think the some of the like, not tone, but some of the, not plot. Like the, the ideas are okay. connected, like fathers and sons, which we didn't really talk about here. It's yeah. kind of doesn't, it's kind of exists, but not really. Right. And then just the physical act of burning barns. So. And having a story called Barn Burning. Barn Burning, exactly. So my winner is Stephen Yoon, because I thought he was great. He and was great. This is a very stereotypical, like, American perspective, but, like, you know, obviously I watched Walking Dead, most of it at least. Um,. I'm a fan of his now, even more than I was before. I thought I did a great job. I thought it was a great Gatsby-esque character. Yeah. So who lost? Ben's Porsche. Oh, man. Not His owner died, and then it got burned up. At least yeah. if your owner dies, you can find a new owner to drive you, but he'll never have a new yeah, owner. Yeah, he should have just stolen the Porsche, John Sue, like, or sold it for money. Yeah. So Something. The Porsche lost. It had R. a good P. life, but uh, yeah. ultimately... Probably carried a lot of dead bodies. That's true. Well, they probably alive when they sat down. and then. Well, actually, that's probably true. Yeah. Carried a lot of live bodies. Hard bodies. <laughs> so my loser was Steven Yoon because he died. Uh, so he was the winner and the loser. That's tough. Yeah. But so. he, great, he had a great role. Yeah, sure he did. Um, and he knows what happens, so... He does. Come on the pod, Stephen Yoon. Stephen Yoon, tell us the truth. Yeah. Although we know what happened. Yeah. But just make it clear for us. Yes. We don't like ambiguity. No. Please. Eric, do you have a favorite quote from either the short story or the film? I do. Mine's from the short story. Um, and it has to do with the tangerines. I'm a big fan of these tangerines. Mm-hmm. Um, the girl in the short story talks about her tangerine miming skill. Yes, she does. And she says of it, quote, has nothing to do with talent. What you do isn't make yourself believe that there are tangerines here. You forget that the tangerines are not there. That's all. It's a great quote. I mean, it's it is central to the story as well. I love the idea of like it's not that you're believing that they're not there. You just forget that they aren't there. Aren't there? Yeah. It's a good little quote. Yeah. My favorite quote is morality is the delicate balance that's involved in parallel existence. And that was something that wasn't really delved into as much in the movie, which I was a little disappointed about. That would be my one gripe, They bring that up in the conversation, the high conversation, but... Yeah, but they don't explain it. They just say it without any sort of, like, context or description. So I was like, ugh. Like, I wish they'd gone into that a little bit more. Because I thought that was was probably my favorite part of the short story. Mm. But, yeah. So, any moments stick out to you in particular? I think we probably have the same moment. I'm a big fan of that scene outside of Jiangsu's house where it's 
they're high, they're talking. It's cool camera work, it's cool production, it's cool scene design. Yeah. Sunset's dope. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that scene. Me too. That was my favorite. That was my favorite scene. I mean, plus it sets up the barn burning, or right. the greenhouse burning scene right after that. Yeah. So it, it, it's a great scene. Um, cool. Are there other scenes that come to mind? I think that shot in front of the reservoir yeah. is cool. That's like a that's a great scene. That's like a, a great little like screenshot. We'll post on the gram, like you said. Yeah. Um, that one. I mean the the one I I mentioned them before where. Uh, the kill scene where he embraces him that really stuck out to me. Like oh that's, like a definite right, um, that he killed her in in, in my opinion, um, and then the other scenes I mentioned. But yeah, those those two probably stuck out the most to me. So, which is better? Book or movie? Um, movie. Not book. Not a, it's a story. True story. Yeah. I'm going to say the, the movie. I think this is the first time we've done, I guess, Invisible Man. We probably did a movie. Uh, Solaris probably did a movie. Yeah. So it's a lot of movies here. It's a lot of movies. A lot of movies we love I'm, movies. I'm going movie again. Yeah. Um, there was more going on. I think it was a little bit smarter. Yeah. Uh, it was just as confusing and requiring you to to revisit it yeah. so there's like there's more text and the text is is good yeah exactly there's more therefore, therefore too. yeah therefore it's a fact the film i choose the film <laughs> i agree as well the film the movie was better uh in my opinion although i will say that the short story even though it's only nine pages it does like have quite an impact it's it is pretty good it, i would say it's it's closer it's a closer uh, competition uh, yeah. than past competitions that we've had. Yeah. Uh, I did enjoy the short story a lot. And you can find it online. You can find it in the New Yorker archive. Yeah. Get a New Yorker subscription or just, I think there's a PDF. Borrow your parents. Yeah, buy a subscription. <laughs> buy your parents' uh, New Yorker subscription, your Netflix, their Netflix subscription. Yeah. And your car. Anything up. else. Yeah. In these COVID 19 times. So, Eric, thank you for joining me in this conversation about burning and barn burning. It's been very nice. But you're welcome. What are we doing next? We are doing to all the boys I've loved before. It's a uh, a 2014 book. Is it your memoir? No, no, no. She like that? The jokes are coming. Oh goodness. <laughs> um, it's a I think a 2014 book, a 2018 movie. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's probably the most famous Netflix original movie I would say. Yeah. Um. So we're following the winds of the people here. Yeah. We're, we're going for the most popular. We're going to read about it, watch about it. Judge us. Tell you about it. Do it. Um, that comes next. We're gonna. It's kind of a big book. I just got it. Mm-hmm. So i got to start reading it. I'll read it next. Yeah. Um, so that's that's next. And then we got some more stuff to announce as the uh, the months roll on. Yeah. Choo-choo-choo. So we'll shoot, we'll shoot that one for hopefully mid-June, mid to late June. Um, and then, yeah, we'll keep grinding on with Netflix and chill through the rest of the summer. Uh, hopefully you guys join us. Eric, do you have... I know we did, we scrapped this a few times ago, but do you have any recommendations for people? Oh, man. Put you on the spot here. I haven't been doing a whole lot recently. Um, any shows, any books, any, any workouts you've been doing? It's about to be summertime, so... I started... Uh, I'm gonna, you know what I'm going to recommend, Will, is running outside when the weather's nice. As long as you're, you're able to dodge people, it's, it's kind of nice... 
the weather is decent. It's been kind of crappy here recently. It's yeah. been cold and windy. Yeah. But when there's a nice day to go outside, feel your muscles move, feel oh, your yeah. knees ache afterwards. You gotta get out. It's nothing quite like it. You gotta gotta get moving. Yeah. Can't be on the couch all day. I'm actually sure. running outside. I don't usually do it, but it's different than treadmill running. Yeah. You get to see the sights, smell the smell the smells. Yeah. Smell the smells, baby. Yeah. So I've actually noticed that my couch has been getting like more and more indented from me sitting in it it's not good i need to like get up and <laughs> so I'll, i will take you up on your recommendation you need like a uh like a one of those like straighteners you just put in the couch that so doesn't like flatten oh yeah i just need a new couch or it's a couch yeah. from college time so. for a new couch <laughs> <laughs> yes i think you're right what we should do is burn that in your backyard and <laughs> we should yeah put that on the ground as a note to burn couch burning <laughs> couch burning there yeah. we go um what's your recommendation my recommendation is to read outside if it's nice, since it's nice out. And I would recommend reading Murakami. I would recommend reading Colorless Susukuru Tazaki and his Years of Pilgrimage or A Wild Sheep Chase, which we both read. Um, those are probably my two favorites. And then Killing Commentador, I really, really love too. But yeah, so read Murakami. He's great. He's but do it outside. Under the stars, under the sun. Unless it's raining. In the shade. Do it outside. Under an umbrella. Yeah. Don't do it on the beach. Don't do it near people. Please. Um, so yeah, this about wraps it up. If you want to read our analyses on the short story and then the film, we're going to be posting those uh, relatively soon here on the blog. Um, so be sure to check that out. And then Eric, where can the people find us? On the Twitters and Instagrams. Not, well, not currently on the Twitters, but maybe if you listen to this in the future, it'll be back. Jack Dorsey will have allowed us back on Twitter. Yeah. We should start a hashtag at Jack Dorsey freely to lens. Yes. Just an idea. They, they haven't liked our content, and they shut us down. But They shut us down. We'll, freedom of speech, damn it. <laughs> Seriously. So we'll be back hopefully soon. Uh, but yeah, find us on Twitter at LittleLens, blogspot, or LittleLensBlog.wordpress.com. Um, and we'll, yeah. SoundCloud, Spotify, at iTunes. Yeah, we're everywhere. I mean, we're basically everywhere, just yeah. on Twitter, because they're a little mad at us right now. And if you want to talk to us, email us at uh, LittleLens at gmail.com. Yeah, please do. Happy to engage in conversation. Um, hopefully it's a nice conversation, but yeah, we'll find out. And then uh, we'd like to shout out our most special and favorite listener, uh, Shia LaBeouf. You know, come on the pod. You know, we miss you. We love you. And, you know, we, we'd love to talk. You know, it's been a while. Forever, really. I mean. Since Transformers 1. Sam Witwicky. I mean, <laughs> Sam Witwicky. Megan Fox just got divorced. Oh, yeah. I heard about that. She's with Machine Gun Kelly. Really? Apparently. Oh, God. I saw that on the Snapchat. This has gone ads. off the rails. Yeah. <laughs> we should, we should wrap this up. We're going to sign off. Thanks for listening. <laughs> See you guys next time.